It's a jumpsuit. Yeah, you look like a mechanic. I look like a Ghostbuster. You look like a, yeah, a fashionable mechanic. It could be like. It's very comfortable. And I did Hollywood. Come from class. I did come from class. It's my first jumpsuit that I've Damn, ever owned. You, yeah, you really put in those pockets. kits. Pockets are good. There's a uh, five do you think, pockets, do you think which you're, is nowhere close to the number of pockets I know you Do you regularly. think you're the first ever university professor teacher to wear a jumpsuit? I mean, not first ever. I'm sure there have been. There are other polyu teachers who also... That are into fashion. Yes. Fashions, oh, really? Fashions. Can you give me an example? I mean, I don't go around asking people what they wear. I would say that the... God, I hope no one listens to this podcast. No, you know for sure someone... Your students are going to listen to this. I mean, I hope my colleagues don't listen to this podcast because I'm about to say that I think that the shoe game could be better. Oh, interesting. Not I've, that I have amazing footwear, but I would say that I find it to be a little boring. You haven't seen any teachers wearing any Sakai's, Sakai Nikes? No. That's like the de facto, I've made this comment before, but it's like the unofficial, official Hong Kong shoe. No, I haven't. Disappointing. But most people wear trainers. I just don't think that. Sneakers. Yeah, sneakers. There could be a more exciting choice. Yeah, I kind of used a job as an excuse to buy some new clothing back in August, which I hadn't bought in a long time. Oh, like I hadn't really acquired. What are you wearing? Wait, no, let's not turn it back on me. I'm not interested in talking about <laughs> what I'm wearing right now. Oh, man. You know what's funny is we were supposed to record earlier in the week and I was actually going to wear the fisherman pants and I didn't. Do you use those pockets? So you I'm do? wearing this like dispatch I don't even know what to call it. They're like, Harness? it's kind of like a bra, but it's not. Imagine a bra <laughs> that doesn't hook up in the front and there's pockets. It, it, <laughs> you can't unsee it now, I bet, right? <laughs> yeah, that is that is exactly what he's wearing. Can, you can take a photo of this. Yeah, I'm ready. He's like a, a bra that's unhooked. That's actually pretty convenient. It is. I will say that that's one of my favorite things about winter is the amount of pockets you can have. So with the jumpsuit, I have five pockets. And then with the jacket that I'm also wearing, I have another four. It's funny because people always make fun of me for having too many pockets. Yet you finally realized the benefit of having a multitude of pockets. We like to make fun of you. Yeah, it's true. All right. What have we got today? Wow. We're jumping right into it. I like it. This is Making It Up, episode 194, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Spoon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we're interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making It Up is produced by Makin, which is original storytelling at its purest, through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. Making It Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex intertwined world we live in. We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners, but really we are working through things and we appreciate you working through them with us. Making It Up is supported by our generous Patreon members. To help us keep going, consider becoming a member at patreon.com slash for Discord access, exclusive newsletters, discounts on our shop, and more. I actually gave Sharice quite a few topics this week. Uh, she didn't end up picking on the ones I gave her, which is fine. I, I actually don't get too uh, bummed out about that. But I am curious why you thought this one was interesting. Because you're like, hey, you should do this one. Well, I, I do have a continuing interest in DAOs and Web3. You, you also low-key like basketball. 
oh, I do low-key like basketball. But so Eugene's subject today is about DAOs and basketball, but I don't always feel confident talking about some subjects. Not, th- not because like I feel badly about it, but there's some things that I think, okay, it's going to be better coming from Eugene. Yeah. Okay. And I'm, I'm by no means a kind of Web3 expert, but I think I am generally quite abreast of how things um, operate and tools and whatnot. And I think what I, what I think you and I probably find most interesting is the collective group consciousness that comes together and how you can actually achieve these challenges or issues. How many like are real problems to solve versus how many are, as, as my friend put it, basically people looking to leverage crypto to find a problem to solve. I also, in a very practical way, think that it's good that we talk about this subject, this meaning generally crypto, blockchain, DAO, Web3, etc., because people are very interested in knowing about it. So. What, one thing that is interesting is, you know, in light of that, it, one of the topics that I did suggest was about just the financialization of everything. And I think actually this is a great example of how you're creating movements that have a very definitive financial layer attached to it, which then allows potentially the cultural element to thrive as well. Right. Yeah. So what I'll do is I'll just jump right into it. And I think some questions might arise as we go through it. Buy your tickets to the Krauss house. There's no actual official title, but like this is sort of the the leading statement and title. And what Krauss house is, it's a DAO, which is a decentralized autonomous organization that has this goal of eventually buying an NBA franchise, like a full-fledged NBA team. And if you follow crypto, there's this acronym called W-A-G-M-I, which stands for We Are Gonna Make It. I've never heard of Yeah, that. it's like pretty well known. It's kind of like GM Good Morning. You oh, know, I'm familiar with GM. Wa- Wagmi. No one calls it Wagmi, but it's like W-A-G. Wagmi. Yeah. Wagmi. Yeah, so We Are Gonna Make It. So basically, you. your okay. group participation mindset will allow you to find success in crypto, basically. So they've changed it to W-A-G-B-A-T. We are going to buy a team. <laughs> okay. Wagbat. Wagbat. Wagbat's yeah. kind of fun to say. Yeah. So Krauss House, which draws its name from Jerry Krauss. If you guys have watched Michael Jordan's The Last Dance, Krauss is actually featured relatively prominently as a bit of a villainous character in the series. Did you watch uh, Last Dance? I did not. Okay. I never wound up watching it. We talked about it on this podcast. I said I would and I didn't. Still a distinct possibility. Anyway, uh, Jerry Krauss is not in any way affiliated no he, he's also house. passed as well which i think they maybe, just took his name yeah for the day i mean kraus honestly was in a pivotal person in building a this dynasty right but no, obviously I mean, you I have mean, michael jordan this dow yeah no way oh yeah, yeah yeah okay explain what their goal is yeah let's move past the legalities and ip of like using someone's name um because i don't know okay so kraus house so kraus house as i mentioned they've put together a series of goals they've broken down into phases and like i said the eventual goal is to buy an nba franchise obviously this is probably not anything that's going to happen immediately i i I imagine this is probably a five to ten year minimum plan to achieve this but who knows things can happen quite quickly and if they gain momentum maybe like as soon as you know a decade from now they're the owners of an nba franchise but in short 1962 backers plowed 4,000 ETH into this project, which equates to, as of today, I'm just going off of their 
general like uh, calculation, four million five hundred sixty-four thousand seven hundred seventy dollars, which is by no means a small amount. This is like a very healthy seed for any company or business. I think there might have been an existing Discord community prior to this, but this is like a full-fledged all-new thing that they're launching. And they created pretty sort of relevant funding mechanism where they had three different tiers of NFTs you could buy. And these NFTs were created and designed as tickets, basically. So the tiers were you could get courtside NFT tickets for 10 ETH or $45,000, club level NFT tickets for one ETH, which is $4.5,000, or the upper level for 0.1 ETH, which is about $450. So obviously, I think when this started, it might have been a bit lower, right? Obviously, there's a scaling uh, valuation as as ETH appreciates or depreciates. Just to give people some concept of relativity, the average NBA team costs $2.4 billion. Thanks. That's actually a great point I didn't include. Yeah. Uh, so $4 million is a lot. But, but not enough. Not enough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So... The initial access you get with these NFTs, which, you know, are kind of like membership passes, right? You get access to the Discord. Um, you get a Discord rule. Obviously, that's free. It's like, hey, you know what? You're a club level supporter. So here's a special tier. Um, eligibility for raffles and airdrops and governance through the Kraus DAO, which means that you'll get an equivalent amount based off of your participation. So you'll get X number of Kraus tokens to then utilize as a voting mechanism. Doesn't mean that theoretically, if they were able to one day buy an NBA team, that each person would get some amount of say in, let's say, acquiring a player or trading a player or starting lineup. I need to look more closely because I think that actually would be the case. Because that's what would make sense to me. That would make the least. case. I think the one thing that is actually the uncertainty is the profit sharing or profits around it. Mm. So the reason why like, it's just like, a, like a, a regulatory thing. You can't really buy this under the pretense of me communicating that there's going to be like the opportunity for you to make money directly off of it, if no, that makes sense. No, I get sense. what you mean. So entering Kraus House at any tier does not guarantee me that in the future, if we own an NBA team, I actually become a part a owner. Part of the Correct. Thank you. That's probably However, the best way of putting it. It might mean that I get some say in how the team is run. Some infinitesimal amount. Yes. Yes. Some percent, some small percentage. Yeah. So obviously it's like fantasy basketball, but real with a real team. It's like football manager, but real. Football yes. manager is like this like game where you literally run a team. You like choose how you spend money to upgrade your stadium, which physio you end up hiring. Yeah. Yeah. So the thing that actually gives me confidence around this, I think the team behind it, like the sort of like the founding team actually has quite a bit of like brand substance. It's not just a bunch of random people that have no experience. They've come from various places. Um, Packy McCormick is someone that we've spoken about and his articles on this exact podcast. So like, obviously, Packy, if you followed his trajectory, he's actually become pretty well known as just this new type of VC where he's able to just leverage his communication and messaging around the stories he creates as a way to kind of get into deals, right? Which is kind of interesting. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah. Over the course of this project, they've broken down into three phases with no definitive timeline around each phase. I think it just happens when it happens. 
Um, phase one is what they call the shoot around. I really like the sports analogies. I think they do a good job of bringing some familiarity with what they're trying to achieve with real instances within sports. So the shoot around, this is where the strength and community experimenting with a kind of a choose your own adventure approach, which means how you get involved in this project uh, is really up to you and you will hopefully be rewarded with NFTs. So it could be like buying products. It could be attending events. Uh, some of the events they have are like ask me anything AMAs with NBA insiders uh, discussing games of the week. You know, maybe it's a tactical analysis or strategy analysis. And also the Krauss House University to educate people on crypto. They also have competitions such as gaming, NBA 2K, betting. Uh, they're also going to build tools like DAO tools, NFT related, I guess call them sub projects. Like, I don't know exactly what that could be. I assume like, hey, let's find a partner who uh, will design a new batch of NFTs for next season when we raise the next round. Uh, business partnerships, and then also exclusive content like podcasts and newsletters. Um, and then phase two, it's what they call the scrimmage. So in this phase, what they're going to do is they're going to look for smaller teams to acquire and gain learnings around running a professional sport franchise. So this makes a lot of sense. I've seen this happen with other sort of professional teams where you've had a relatively affluent owner come in. Like I'll use an example. So Matthew Benham, who's the current owner of Brentford, is a good example of someone who went, obviously as an individual, went the route of testing it out. I should know how to pronounce the original team he bought, but I don't know how. I it's don't know FC. either. M-I-D-T-J-Y-L-L-A-N-D. Yeah, it's, it's a team that's based in, I think, Denmark. It is a Danish team. I can confirm that. However, I have no idea how to pronounce his name. Yeah. Danish people, you can write in. Yeah. So basically, that was his uh, trial and error guinea pig, as, as some people would say. Basically, he had a really strong analytical mindset, which he then used to find success with this club. And then he then moved on to a bigger club, or he bought a bigger club. Brentford. Yes, Brentford, which now plays in the Premiership. So that's a good example of you testing the different waters of running a professional franchise. And then building upon that. Um, I think one, one thing that's really important is they want to learn how to run a team without a single point of failure. And they can basically take minority and majority stakes in teams and just basically serve these teams as like what they call a service DAO. So basically providing them with, you know, like almost like an agency service. Like, let me help you with your marketing. Let me help you with like... I don't know, setting up a financial structure. I'm, I'm kind of like just... I get what you're yeah. being, like offering some type of service. Correct. Yeah, so that, that's kind of their value add. It's like smart money, right? Mm -hmm. Me putting money into this third division Romanian club might actually be helpful because they will give us the opportunity to actually significantly transform this. Maybe they have an existing system where they're able to run numbers around the stats of players and pick the best one to then influence how they sign players going forward. Sure. Um, and also because they're hopefully building up maybe a network of teams they co-own, right? They can then create synergies around that. Uh, they can share some of the tools they developed, et cetera. And then phase three, which they call game time, is buying an NBA team. And obviously at that point, the legal structure is to be determined. Phase one had the most <laughs> description around it because obviously it's the one they can see the most. They have the most clarity. It's the one that's in the present. Phase two and three progressively got shorter because you don't really know what's going to happen. I think in, in many instances, I think it's a lot easier to buy a team that isn't in a major league because 
some of those are not run as multi-billion dollar franchises. It's just run as any other job, right? Yeah. Like that's one thing people need to understand is that not everyone that is a professional athlete is making an NBA salary. They could literally be getting paid the same as, I don't know, maybe the same as someone that works at McDonald's. Like literally like in, in some parts of the world where you're playing um, like let's say third division in Brazil or something or f- yeah. fifth division or whatever, right? Well, you're I think g- it's also interesting to me because phase three is the big vision and dream, but phase one is attractive enough that people are happy to be a part of this, even if it is at this phase one stage. Like they yeah. still find it personally satisfying, rewarding, promising enough to get this. It doesn't have to reach the buy a team stage. Yeah. The one thing that I do think is interesting is like in in light of this, how do they continue to generate revenue beyond just continually selling stuff, right? Like they kind of need to pull new people in, which is not hard, but I think that eventually they had to find a balance because if they went and spent, you know, half of their budget or half of their the treasury on marketing or to generate attention or or to do programming or whatever for community building, obviously that reduces their ability to enter the next phase mm. and the next phase. So obviously like you're still quite far away, but like that's the one thing that I find interesting is that there's no existing business here per se, right? Beyond yeah. financial funding no, versus there like- isn't really. You have to come up with a business solution to continually generate value and revenue or to just grow that, you know, 4 million into something that's significantly of greater value. But you know what you said at the beginning, and which we've talked about a little bit in the Macon Discord. Well, I didn't message, but I did read some of your guys' comments. There isn't actually a problem that this DAO is solving because it's not a problem that you don't have an NBA team. The solution of buying an NBA team is not a real solution Correct. in the sense that it is a fabricated problem. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We've, and we've talked about this. It's like crypto kind of going out there and finding a solution to a problem. But I mean, I think it, it is interesting because it allows an opportunity where maybe you and I would never have the opportunity personally to own a professional franchise, but because we're now co-investing in one, we do have that opportunity. I mean, I suppose if you think about, if I think about it this way, I think Krauss House, before they get to the NBA team stage, this is a group of people who indicate an interest in the overlap between basketball and crypto. Yep. And so then I would just look for what combinations are there between basketball and crypto before you get to the buy an NBA team stage, yep. which I can imagine might you know, basketball summer camps, individual athlete relationships. There's probably a whole bunch of things yeah. that could come out. Yeah. What is your personal interest with DAOs in general? Like, do you like it for the the sort of shiny newness of it? Or do you actually think that there's something in the middle to long term around building organizations that embody a DAO structure? I think saying I like it is almost a stretch because I can't say that I have this emotional affection for DAOs. However, I would say that I would bet on it being promising. Mm. I would, I would do see potential, not in every DAO, like not in every specific DAO that is formed, but in the format and the future, I do think it's going to be around and it's going to evolve. And so I think it's important to 
know what's happening. I think that is my interest. Got it. So right. it's more about like, there's definitely something here that has long-term yes. sustainability like interest. Like, I don't think this is just going to be, you know, the flavor of this month. And therefore, you know, why talk about it? I think years from now, it will still be relevant. Makes sense. And it is more interesting to me to talk about things like Krauss House because of, you know, elements that you said. They are backed by a team with experience that are committed to, you know, the future of DAOs and Web3. And so that suggests to me that this is not just, you know, frivolous. This is not just about, you know, it's not a get rich quick scam. Yeah. Like, I don't see it that way. Yeah. Though others might. And I'm sure you already know about this, but I did see as well on Twitter about the Constitution DAO. Yeah, yeah. So very quickly, a DAO was formed to bid on one of the 13 original versions of the U.S. Constitution. They formed this DAO, raised a ton of money. I want to say it was over 20 million. 43.17 million. Well, that's how much they raised or that's how much the Constitution went for? That's how much they bid on it. Oh, okay, I got it. At Sotheby's. I don't know if that's the exact number they raised. That's how much they bid. They lost the bid. Yeah. And then the DAO closed. I find the purpose to be, unlike Krauss House, I personally find the, the purpose of acquiring the Sotheby's item to be less interesting. Because it's more of a, like an investment vehicle in the purest sense in a way. Yeah. Well, I mean. Because I doubt that all of, cause not I doubt, but it's not that, I mean. Not to cast like aspersions about interest, but I genuinely believe that the Krauss House people, there is an overlap between people who are interested in basketball and sports and also crypto. But the Constitution is like, how many of you really care about like U.S. history or, you know, the relevance of this archival item? Like it does feel very much like it's more about a speculative participating play. in a bit of popular culture. Yeah. One thing I wanted to ask is what elements of the Krauss House model can be applied to other things that are not sports franchise related. I mean, the one thing that came to mind was the museum. And I don't know if you saw this, but most recently there was this idea that formed after the passing of Virgil, which was a like a deck that he had put together that was basically called, called Skyscraper. And it was about doing some sort of like digital offline mm. museum. Yeah. Which would be interesting. I mean, like, Every single mechanism that's within the Krauss house, like, hey, let's create this initial seed of, you know, what is the equivalent of five million US dollars, right? You go in, everyone becomes a member, you become sort of like donors to this digital museum, which is digital to start with, right? And then obviously you have the ability to use it as a platform, you build like a digital clubhouse for it, you display art, you sell art. You help market them. So I think that almost becomes very interesting and different. Not, it's, not, it's not different because it's doing things that don't need to be done. It's more about it's taking the same model that exists, but now spreading the workload and the interest amongst a massive group of like actual stakeholders. Mm. So if, you know, 10,000 people each put enough money to be part of that $5 million raise, like, hey, you know what? I can decide what what is direction or like... Do, do I want to like create a theme for next next month's show? If so, what are the different themes we can follow? Who's a curator for this show? I think museum is really great as a suggestion because museums historically have been funded by very wealthy, powerful people, 
which means that the type of work shown in museums is related to the tastes and preferences of wealthy, powerful people. And so like museums in particular, I think as a concept should be for the people and guided by more than just those in power. And therefore, the Dow Museum is interesting to me. I would also suggest higher education. I mean, partially because, you know, this is what I've been doing for the last three months, but because I see this discrepancy between the university's motivations as an institution, which I'm not saying that, like, I understand sometimes why universities make the unpopular decisions that they do. And other times I think that it really could be different. For example, actually, a lot of universities in the UK have been going on strike regularly because of changes in practices in the way universities hire and let go and just work with part-time lecturers. Anyway, universities like museums are really for, from my POV, everyone meant to be for the public good. And so to me, it's like those are the things that should be in the hands of the public. Mm-hmm. I suppose in theory, anything could. Well, well, I, mean, I guess like for, we see it at a stage right now where uh, you could try. I mean, for me, I, th- I, I think the, the part that makes things like this a little bit more interesting is if there's an existing business there that then welcomes a token layer versus like, finding a way to operate this thing without any sort of like existing business. Mm. So like it's more that the tokenization should serve as a tool to help further along the company or the goal. It shouldn't be like the reason why we're coming together is because we can raise money through NFT sales. Yeah. So that's kind of my difference. Like yeah. if you did it as a restaurant, the restaurant would serve food regardless if it had a DAO or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that's kind of what I'm looking at is like, opportunities where you can actually build an existing or you have an existing business and the existence of that said business can now be elevated and or new things can be unlocked because of a DAO structure. That's kind of what I'm looking at. And I don't think every single one, like I I think even a brand could work, but I think a brand would be very tough because like, would you- Brand is tough because it's Often in the beginnings revolving around a very strong voice. Yes. So like a fashion brand. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Needs I'm thinking a very fashion strong brand. Yeah, voice. In order to be popular. And so it's hard to imagine it being DAO based. But I do agree with you, you know, existing business, when you put it that way, I also think maybe existing businesses that are struggling a little bit or find themselves at a static stage and the DAO could lead to a direction that lead to any direction where there might not be one right now. So yeah, I guess in short, I mean, not not a lot else to say beyond the fact that I think we'll be watching intently with how this is done. I think the communication around it and how they broke down the different opportunities, the phases they're going to pursue, I think was really helpful. We'll see what happens. And I think that because it's so rooted in something that already exists, aka like building a community said community is going to try to acquire a sports team. It's like, it feels very tangible and real. Should I move on? Yep, let's do it. Okay, my subject this week comes from an article in Slash Film written by Ben Pearson, and it's titled 
Here's why movie dialogue has gotten more difficult to understand and three ways to fix it. And the premise is that lately it has become increasingly difficult to hear and understand the dialogue in Hollywood films. I have experienced this personally. I tried to off air give Eugene an example. He did not know the film to which I was referring. However, listeners might. I was talking about Tenet, the most recent Nolan film. Nolan is the director of Interstellar, Inception, The Dark Knight Rises. And Tenet was criticized by a lot of people, not for its content, but just sheerly being unable to know what anyone was saying at any point. Let's play a clip. So Ben Pearson, he spoke to a bunch of professional sound editors, designers and mixers to find out what's happening. And they all agreed that it is an industry topic of discussion. And a lot of people have some, you know, strong opinions on what is going on. Jaim Bakshit, who worked on Sound of Metal and Roma, he said, it's not easy to mix a movie. Everybody thinks you're just moving levers, but it's not like that. And then Mark Mangini, who worked on Mad Max Fury Road and Blade Runner 2049, said there are a number of root causes. It's really a gumbo, an accumulation of problems that have been exacerbated over the last 10 years. That's kind of this time span where all of us in the filmmaking community are noticing that dialogue is harder and harder to understand. So I'm going to talk about all of the different problems that Pearson outlines. Uh, I will say at the top here that the reason why I was interested in the subject is directly because of personal experience. You do watch movies sometimes. Yeah. How often do you turn on the subtitles? Lately, all the time. Why is that? Uh, I'm going to give a reason that I don't think many people will like, but it's just like I, I can process it faster. No, right? I mean, that's, I think that's fair. Oh, but don't, don't you want the, the natural outcome to just play out? I feel like when you're watching a movie, the artistic element of just like the delivery should be respected. Like if I'm going to take my time, it's probably voiced out like that for a reason. It's communicated for a reason. Well, I think I think it's fair because as much as viewers want the artistic experience, we also want comprehension. And even though you're saying this as like, oh, I want to know what's happening in advance. I think a level of it is just to be able to be aware of the plot, you know? And yeah, yeah. I, I, and it's much easier to do that if you read the subtitles. I just never expected the, the audible nature to be that bad that I, you couldn't understand what they were saying. So if, if I understand correctly. It's so difficult to just hear the words that actors are saying that more and more viewers at home turn on subtitles. So it's not. Even for movies that are in their native language. But it's not because of the complexity of the script. It's just the sound mixing. So that's why I was interested in this article, because that is my experience that actually sometimes my partner and I, we do want to watch a movie without subs just so there's not like a bar of text across the bottom for like movies that are really beautifully cinematographically shot. Anyway, it's not possible because then you don't know what's going on. So some of the problems. One of them is that it's a purposeful choice. Some directors like Nolan do it intentionally. They think that it's it's their aesthetic choice, essentially. It's a style, right? Um, but some of the sound mixers that Pearson spoke to said that they think it's possible for your aesthetic to change from scene to scene. 
Like a movie has the ability to be. 100%. Yeah. Like the color grading might change a little bit based off the scene, et cetera. Yeah. You know, how critical is it that this moment, you just need that crisp sound versus another moment where you can be more mumbly. Also, they pointed out that there has been a shift in acting. So this is somewhat interesting. I mean, I don't know enough about acting to say why this is happening, but Karen Baker Landers, who worked on Gladiator, Skyfall and Heat, said that mumbling, breathy, I call it self-conscious type of acting is so frustrating. I would say a lot of the younger actors have adopted that style. I think the onus also falls on the directors to say, I can't understand a word you're saying. I'm listening to dailies and I can't understand. No amount of volume is going to fix that. It's like mumble rap, but. Yes, but in acting. Yeah. So apparently there's, again, they don't say why, but there's been a shift in Which acting is, trends. Yeah, that's really interesting, actually. Because you're right. It's the director to be like, yo, you are not helping the, the overall cause of this. Yeah. Even though you might think this is, I guess they must think that that's good acting. And then this third point, I think, is interesting for all creative professions. The third problem is that sound isn't respected enough on sets. So Mangini, quoted above, said that movies tend to prioritize visual perfection. And because of that priority on way things look, then they don't let sound professionals on set put the mic exactly where it needs to be. Totally. Where they recommend it to be. Uh, in addition, the director or whoever is calling the shots doesn't let the sound guys get another take or they might not on set. There's like power dynamics. Right. And so totally. the people interviewed said that often the sound guys are just lower on the list and all the people doing visuals get more attention. Yeah, That's than they so do. valid because also there's things where like just the uncontrollable nature of audio, like, you know, we've recorded, there's like a car that's zooming by whatever like obviously i can control someone not walking into the scene right but i can't control something that's you know 100 meters away that i cannot control it's just the reality of the situation actually that's really interesting yeah i thought it was really interesting and it's also you know he talks about this in the solutions later about getting everyone together in advance on projects to make sure everyone kind of has equal value that you're not overlooking one part of the production just because of maybe like a preconceived notion that if the visual's good, you know, don't worry about the sound. We can overlook that. More on the problem side, Pearson said technology has, interestingly, as more options became available, sound became more difficult because the technology is so improved that movie makers can do whatever they want. And again, I think this is relevant to other creative professions as, as well, because when you have all of these software and hardware tools available, you kind of get paralyzed. Yeah. And oftentimes you might just do things because you can do it. Oh, like, let's use this fancy camera or let's add in all these effects. But actually, that's not in service of whatever purpose yeah. you have. In my personal experience, somewhat relevant to this, like we're just wrapping up that documentary and like. Yeah, totally. I think sound in itself is often a little bit more difficult because like there was definitely two barriers of success. Like the barrier of success for audio would just always seem a lot lower. Mm -hmm. Like as long as we got to this level is sufficient. And the 
level that we need to hit for the visual side was always much higher. And obviously we tried harder to hit the visual side. And, you know, especially doing a documentary, there's a lot of like editing that goes on with the audio itself. And that was almost just accepted. It was mm-hmm. more like, hey, we're going to rearrange things here and there. And that's okay. Versus like trying to get a level of audio perfection. I mean, there's different ways of looking at it, right? Like in some ways you want them to deliver a very clean, uh, easy to hear line. And sometimes you don't, you know, you don't go through the trouble of doing that. You're just like, whatever, I'll figure it out afterwards. Well, I think it's also dependent on, I get this kind of related to the previous one about respecting sound or being aware of what sound does, because it's also related to how much knowledge you have about a different part of the creative process. And I assume that you and Alex are way more knowledgeable about what is possible visually as opposed to what might be possible in terms of audio. And so you would really set like a lot of high expectations there. You know what's I think different is that audio in itself in a movie context doesn't really have that much variance. And what I mean by that is like the expectation is more to hear a human like voice versus like within the realm of picture making, there's so many different effects, like even uh, sort of out of this world experiences you can create. And I think that that in short creates a much, much lower expectation for audio. I would say I both agree and disagree. I agree in the sense that the average audience member is way more in tune to visual effects. And even the average person who doesn't make films is able to identify if something is like bad CG or good CG, or if they feel like the framing is off on something. Like those are things that I would think someone walking out of a theater might say, but it's unlikely that the average moviegoer is going to say, oh, like around that 30 minute mark, there was this like weird sound effect, right? Like those things are maybe overlooked. On the other hand, I disagree because I do think it's possible to have as much audio range. It's just that most humans don't know it or is not aware of it. No, but I think the audio range in itself will just be set within a certain band. Like, versus when I watch a movie, like, I can watch a guy walking down the street in New York or I can see, like, Mars being built and I can see, you know what I mean? Like, what I'm trying to say is that... No, I know what you mean, but I think that sound does something that most people are not super conscious of until you, like, watch a behind-the-scenes, like, for example, Foley, like the addition of sound effects, like footsteps, walking, like these all add to the expression of whatever is happening visually. But again, I would but say- that- what I'm saying is that that's all rooted in a certain reality, which is why it's impactful. Versus when you visualize something, I can visualize something like when you watch um, Dune or whatever, right? Like that's a world that's created that is not of this mm-hmm. current world. So I think that in reality, like mm, that, that variance you allows you to actually just like go above and beyond. But like, for example, in Dune, they still have to speak a language I understand or they have to communicate in yeah. a way I understand. I think, you know, maybe the sound in terms of music and sound effects is a little bit different. Yeah. But I think the actual human vocal range is defined by a band. That's true. I would say that's true. Curious to know what is the sort of outcome of this like oh. if if people recognize that this is an issue is it going to yeah, change yeah i will go down to solutions one more problem i will highlight is that i mean i think this is 
a problem that anyone doing distribution has, which he, the people he spoke to said, you have to mix for all different types of contexts, like you're mixing for the theater, for streaming, for home release, for Blu-ray, and you can't control all the different situations in which your outcome is watched and appreciated. Anyone who makes any type of material will identify with this because yep. you can't control are they watching it on an iMac, a MacBook, a PC, or your phone, like an iPhone iPad? 6. Like, there's nothing you, you can know? do about that. There, there's very little you can do about that. Like, you can make a recommendation, and that's kind of it. So, Pearson wraps up his article by talking about solutions. He says, number one is to educate everyone involved in the industry on the importance of sound. Because one of the big problems that he highlighted and spent time discussing was the fact that on set during production, sound is overlooked. So we talked about that already about, you know, being aware of what every person on a team brings, not brushing off valid concerns that will uh, result in problems at the end. He also says that sound professionals should continue to educate themselves. This kind of seems like a very blanket statement. This is true for anyone who works in a fast moving field. Like if you work in social media, you're educating yourself every day on what's happening, right? Basically, he says the same thing for people who work in sound. And then lastly, he said there need to be tough conversations on set between directors and sound designers. And there was an interesting anecdote from Mangini at the end. I'm going to paraphrase his story. He said there was a director he worked with for five times and for four of the films, there weren't there wasn't great sound because of the crew and they didn't respect the sound team enough on set and finally Mangini said hey we really need to prioritize dialogue and you're going to call a meeting you're going to introduce the sound people you're going to emphasize to the rest of your crew that they need to listen to the sound people and it resulted in the best possible sound for that fifth film that he worked with this director on and what i like about this i suppose like why i highlight this on this podcast in particular is a little bit about workplace or creative project dynamics. Because I think perhaps there are designers, like let's not say whether they are younger or less experienced or whatever, but they don't feel like I can approach the person in charge and say, hey, there's a problem right now. And it's I already know I can identify that like a week from now, it's going to become a bigger problem. Yes. Right. But they feel like, ah, oh, like maybe this is what they want to do. Like maybe they already know it's a problem. However, this is about, you know, over communication. Like if you recognize early on in a process that something is going to lead you guys to a poor output, you have to say it as soon as possible. Like as soon as you think it, essentially. That's pretty much it for me. I mean, again, it was a question I have been having. And so I was so quick to click on this link. Because I was like, I want to know what's going on with movies. And then I, I do like this article because it's quite detailed. And because Pearson talks to actual professionals in the industry, I, I just like that it was a well-researched piece. Yeah. It's interesting because sometimes because of an element of hearing, because I think hearing is one of the things where it's a little bit more subjective in the sense of like, oh, is my hearing going? Right? Like, I don't know if you ever thought like, oh, maybe I just have bad hearing. I have definitely thought you, that. Like when you watched the movie, were you like curious yeah. if it was like my own issue that was causing me to not understand this? Yeah, like so sometimes we'll go to a movie and then I'll ask my partner, 
was that difficult to understand or maybe it was just me. Oh, interesting. Yeah. You do. You I have more doubts about my ability to hear things than I have about my Seeing. ability to see things. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting yeah. thing. I don't know how you get better. At analyzing if you're the issue or the movie's the issue? No, no, no. Sorry. I don't know how you get better at hearing things. Can you? I don't think so. Really? Well, how get, do you get better like, at- I think you can, better get, you can get better at noticing things that you see. Not that your vision improves, okay, but that you get better at noticing whatever it is that you want to focus on. Yeah. So like, say, for example, you want to get better at color grading. So you watch TV shows and movies and you pay more attention to color in general. So is it possible when you're listening to things to really focus your listening? I would guess that it is, but maybe you and I just do not have that that's just a mental state, though. Isn't it? I think it's a skill. I mean, there's the physical aspect and there's the... Because related to your ear. The Yeah, the physical aspect. But then the other part is, I mean, I'm, I'm moving away from movies, but just like analyzing the delivery of something to extract meaning from delivery. Yeah, you're not going to be able to change the physical level quality of your ears and eyes. But now that you said being able to analyze differences, it is true, I think, that you could train yourself to be more aware of someone's tone of voice, for example, which is about listening. I suppose we've just never been interested enough in sound to, or myself, I would say, not interested enough in sound and sound design to really pay attention. Yeah, cool. All right, good place to wrap things up. That's a good place to cap things off for the day. If you are interested in hearing more about making, reading, and listening to some of our stories, focus on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at makin.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via patreon.com slash makin. Patreon members get access to the Makin Discord, where we talk about episodes of Making It Up and everything else going on in global creative culture. Become a member and join us in those conversations. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.